let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 8. And I'm going to read from verse 15. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. Now, let me just say that um, Noah's already been in the ark quite a while. If you've missed the last few weeks, we've been doing the Noah story. We left Noah last week in the ark. And the fascinating thing is, um, sorry, we will get back to the reading. The fascinating thing is, in chapter 8, verse 13, we're told that by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. So the water had dried up. That was on the first day of the first month. Then we're told by verse 14, by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Noah stayed in the ark. Now, I don't know when you last went on a plane, but my, at the end, once you arrive in the airport, the pilot always says, please remain seated until the seatbelt signs go off and we've come to a complete stop. But no one really does. Everybody's desperate to get off, right? Everyone's like, just get this thing. I just want to get out of it. Noah's been in the ark for getting on for a year. And yet he waits. I find that extraordinary. He can see that it's dry. He knows the ground is dry, but he waits until God says. Then God said, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that's with you. The birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out. Together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea that are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Let's ask that God would help us. Father, this is, um, this is your word. This is precious. This is not just some ancient writing. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired word. And that same spirit who inspired the word then is the same spirit who is at work now. So we beg of you, Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to understand what it means and help us to know how to live in the light of it, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me let me be honest. I um I found writing this sermon really hard. And I found myself going round and round in circles. And I found myself getting to things that were more and more and more complicated and difficult and hard and I it was hard work. In fact, to the point where I was pretty stressed and I had to get on my knees and say, God, I don't know what to do. And as I was working on this, the one thing that came pretty powerfully to me as I was preparing this was this. Just keep it simple. So here it is. You ready? God makes a promise that he will never break. That's it. That's what Genesis 9 is about. God makes a promise that he will never break. And promises are precious things. Or to use the Bible word that you probably spotted came up over and over again, God makes a covenant. Covenant is a word that expresses a promise, but it's more than just a promise. It's a commitment. It's a bond that takes two and joins them together in a covenant relationship. It's a powerful thing. And so all I want to do this afternoon is I want to explore this covenant together. What is this covenant and what difference does it make? Because here's the thing, right? Promises are designed to change the future. When someone makes a promise to you, it's supposed to change something. It's supposed to change the future. If I promise to meet you at McDonald's by the London Eye tomorrow night at 6 p.m., I promise I'll be there. This is, I won't, man, (laughs) don't all turn up. (laughs) If I promise that, the point of it is to change your future. It is so that you will act differently. Because my guess is you weren't planning to go to McDonald's by the London night at 6 o'clock tomorrow night. But the promise that I make leads to a transformation in the future, your future. Now that's trivial. But if God, who made the world, has made a promise, then that promise could completely change your future. 
So let me just ask you as we start, are you ready to have your future completely changed? Seriously, are you ready for that? Can you imagine if you left church this afternoon saying, actually, I think my future has been changed because of the promise God made? You see, that's what happens when you respond to a promise with faith. Of course, your your future doesn't have to change if I tell you I promise to meet you at McDonald's at 6 o'clock tomorrow night. Your future doesn't have to change. You could ignore it. You can go to Nando's at 6 o'clock where you were planning to go. It doesn't, nothing has to change for you. You might say to yourself, I don't believe John T. He's a liar. He's untrustworthy and I don't think he'll probably even be there. Although if you knew my love of McDonald's, you'd probably think it rang true. And similarly, God's promise doesn't have to change us. So here's the thing. God's promise transforms the future. So we need to take this promise seriously. And we've been talking a lot about faith and what faith is and how faith works. Well, faith is this. Faith is letting God's promise change your future. So let's have a look at what the promise is. Firstly, let's see uh, who makes the promise. It's pretty clear. It's God. It's God all the way through. Have have a look at it with me. Um, It's most clear in the last, uh, in verse um, 8, chapter 9. God said to Noah and his sons with him, "I, I now establish my covenant with you. It is God who is making this promise. It is the God who created the universe, who now promises something. So it's a covenant that is God's covenant. His idea, he came up with it. It wasn't a negotiation. It wasn't a kind of a tit for tat. They didn't haggle over it. God just said, here it is. You know what it's like when you go to buy something new? Uh, You know, like a car, probably not a car, uh, something else that you might actually buy. Um, A car. Imagine you go to buy a car. You sort of feel that there's a... You have a duty to haggle, don't you, when you buy a car? You, you, you know, there it says the price. You know that if you pay the price, you, you can't admit to anyone you just paid the price. You sort of hag to haggle over it, and they have to do their kind of, ooh, that's hard, I'll go and ask my manager. <laughs> yes, you know, you can't have that. And then when you come out, you, you know, you have to tell everyone, well, I knocked him down a long way. That's how we make agreements, right? We, we haggle over it. Nothing of that here. Like we noticed last week, again, Noah doesn't say anything. It's all God, God, God. God speaks, this is my covenant. Okay, who does he make his promise to? Who's the promise for? Well, at the first sense, you might say, well, it's a, it's a promise to uh, Noah. Yes, that's true. Verse 8. God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Ha, but look, <laughs> not just for Noah and Noah's descendants, but with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. And just to make it absolutely clear, he says it again in verse 12. The sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. And just in case you haven't got it, verse 15, I'll remember my covenant between me me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. 
And in case you haven't got it, he says it again in verse 16. I'll see it, remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. So God said, now this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on earth. Here is God's promise. God makes a promise to every living thing. I, that's a big promise. This is the most extensive and expansive covenant you could ever imagine. God promises to every living thing on earth. So if you are alive this afternoon, you're part of this. And you may say, but I don't even believe in God. Tough. <laughs> he doesn't care. He does a little bit. But as far as his covenant goes, he's made his covenant with you. We have a praying mantis in our house. I know. It's bizarre. We had to, that was a haggle. Dog, cat, hamster, guinea pig, snake, frog, praying mantis, alright. That's how it went. The praying mantis, God has made a covenant. Get this, God has made a covenant with that praying mantis. In fact, we've got a little box of mealworms that live next to the praying mantis, which are its food. So they wiggle around in their box, waiting to be fed to the praying mantis. There's about a hundred of them in there. God has made his covenant with them. The massiveness of this plan is extraordinary. God is big. His promise is big. He has promised all life on earth. You know, I think a lot of people imagine that David Attenborough really loves planet earth. I think he probably does. But he does not love planet earth as much as God does. God loves earth. He loves this place. He loves all of the animals. He loves all of the creatures. He loves everything that he's made. He loves earth. And so he's made a covenant with earth. And he has said to earth, well, what's he said? What is his covenant? The covenant is with all life. And what is the promise? Did you spot it? It was five times he said the same two words. The promise was never again. Never again. So look at verse 21 of chapter 8. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human thought is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Never again. You get it again in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again. They're powerful words. Here is the God of the universe saying, I will never, never, never do that again. That's his promise. And in many ways, that's an important promise. You see, here is Noah, right? You try and get yourself back into the story, okay? 
Here is Noah coming out of the ark. All the picture books have a big smiley Noah coming out into a shiny new world, trundling down the the ramp with all his little animals following him, big rainbow, all happy, smiley, shiny. Do you not think that Noah would be completely freaked? This earth, this world that he knew, this world that was his home, has been completely wiped out by a flood of devastating proportions. And as he walks down into this new world, he must think, how on earth does life work here? Is God going to do it again? Is this going to happen every single time we get stuff wrong? Is this, is this how it works? Do I have to live my life in fear, never quite sure when the next big flood's going to happen? Is that how I have to live my life? And God comes to me and says, no, no, no. Never again. Never again. And what you discover as you read through the book of Genesis is that God is introducing himself. Remember, we're still right at the start of his book, right? We're still right at the start of the Bible. Here's God's book introducing himself to us. And God says, I want you to know who I am. Listen, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know about God, you need to know who God is. You have to understand who, not just what you think he might be, but listen to what he said about himself. He introduces himself as the creator in chapters one and two. He makes everything. He's the creator God who speaks and all life comes. He's so passionate about life. All life comes as he speaks. He's the creator. Then in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, he introduces himself as the judge who when humanity sin against him, he rightly punishes sin. He's the creator and he's the judge. And if that's all you had, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like a very happy place to be because if he's the creator and the judge, what hope have we got? Well, Genesis chapter 9, he's the covenant maker. God says, this is who I am. I'm the creator, I'm the judge, and I'm the covenant maker. And all hope is to be found in the fact that God has made a covenant. Now, this is... Um, important, and this might be slightly technical, but just I want to be um, clear about this. What God is doing is he says, I establish my covenant. I make my covenant. It's not a new thing. He is articulating something that's already true. In creating the world, God has already made a commitment to the world. God is not saying, okay, fine. I was the creator. I've been the judge. Let's play a covenant maker for a bit. Now, these three things remain true about God. He is still the creator who deserves our worship. He's still the judge who punishes sin. And he's still the covenant maker who makes a promise. And so God has promised you and the praying mantis and the mealworms. Never again will he destroy all life on earth. And I want to suggest to you that for Noah, that is where security is to be found. We've talked a lot about faith this this term. And of course, faith is only any good if the one you put your faith in is faithful. 
If you come across a rickety rope bridge hanging across a great chasm with a thousand foot drop to a waterfall. And you go, aha, I've got great faith. I'm so courageous and bold. Look at me. And you run out into the middle of the thing. It doesn't matter how much faith you've got if the bridge breaks. You could have great faith, but you place your faith in the wrong thing. And it's all over. Or you might be someone who gets to the edge and you go, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm really not sure, but I'm going to give it a go. And you crawl across on your hands and knees. Doesn't matter. If the bridge is strong, you'll make it to the other side. You may have to stop halfway to puke over the side. You may be wobbling and shaking all over the place, but you'll make it to the other side because faith doesn't save you. The bridge saves you. Therefore, the question is not, do you have faith? Are you a confident, courageous, bold person? The question is, where is your faith put? In whom is your faith put? What are you trusting in? Because if the thing you're trusting in breaks, then it doesn't matter how confident you are. But if the thing or the person you're trusting in is faithful, then you could have faith as small as a mustard seed. You see? And some of us sit in church going, I wish I had more faith. I wish I had more faith. Some of us sit here going, oh, we read about Noah. We're reading about George Muller, uh, a a guy from the um, 1800s um, with our kids at the moment. Just an extraordinary story of faith. And it's easy to read it and feel crushed and go, oh, I'm such a rubbish Christian because I've got such little faith. But the question isn't how much faith you have, it's where you've put that faith. And the more you crawl across the bridge on your hands and knees, the more you wobble and fear, the more you'll realize the bridge is strong. And the more you'll get up, and the more you'll learn to run, and the more you'll learn to trust. But that happens As you look to God, not as you try to generate faith. I must try to be more like this. I must try. No. Look at God. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's the covenant God and he's made a promise with all of creation. Okay. We're now going to go through the... I've set this up. We're now going to quickly go through the verses. And I want to show you um, exactly what's going on here. Um, And we'll touch on some stuff which I hope will be helpful as we go. It may be that in your head somewhere, you've got a question going, what's changed? How come in chapter 6, God was like, I've seen all the wickedness, and uh, I'm going to destroy all life on earth. And now he's going, I'm never going to do that again. Why? Is it because he's removed all wickedness? Is it because now there is no more wickedness to remove? It was a one-off act. It's done the job. Everything's clean. Whoopie-doo, and off we go again. No, we know that's not the case because God says that the inclination of the human heart is still evil, even after the flood. So what changed? Well, look at verse 20. What is the first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds... He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. 
Do you think that's just there as an incidental detail? God, Noah takes some animals. Look, I mean, you've got to feel for the animals, right? They've been through the flood. They've been on the ark. They made it through the flood. We're free. We're free. We're free. Oh. <laughs> Noah kills part of the gene pool. But there's not many of them going. Right? And yet there's something about making a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice, a burnt offering. And as the offering is burnt, as the sacrifice is given, verse 21 tells us the Lord's response. God smells the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground. There is a direct link between the burnt offering, the sacrifice... God smells it. God accepts it. It is pleasing to God. And he says, I will never I will never destroy again. You may say, this is weird. But God is teaching a pattern. Here is the pattern. His never again will I destroy promise rests upon a sacrifice. There has to be a sacrifice. As the animals die, it is as if Noah is saying, that is what I still deserve. But I offer these as a substitute in my place. And God says, never again. And you say, what? How on earth can that be the case? How can it be that the blood of animals could take away sin and fix sin? How could that ever be the case? And if you ask that question, you'd be right. How could that ever be the case? It can't be the case. The blood of animals could never take away sin, but they're pointing forward, forward, forward to, ah, we'll get to it, a new covenant. A new covenant with new blood. A new sacrifice, which guarantees the never again destruction. So it's based on sacrifice as Noah offers the sacrifice. God says never again. He knows. He knows the inclination of the human heart. He's not fooled. Sometimes we make decisions, don't we? And then with hindsight, wish we'd done something different. Like agreeing to have a praying mantis, right? You, you make a decision, and then in hindsight, you go, well, that was a dumb decision. God doesn't ever have hindsight. God doesn't say, never again will I destroy. And then a few months later, he goes, oh, man, they're still wicked. He knows. He knows that the... Still, the human heart has not changed. The flood has not changed the basic human problem. The the sin has been carried in the ark, through the ark, through to this new world. But God says, I'm never going to destroy again. Despite human sin. Because of a sacrifice. And he says, instead, there's going to be Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. It's never going to cease. That we take for granted that seed time comes and cold and heat sometimes. Summer and winter, day and night. We take those things for granted. That is all part of God's covenant with Noah. We live in the covenant of Noah. We live under this covenant Based on sacrifice. But then look from verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and you see it's based on sacrifice, but it's passionate about life. 
That's the passion of God's covenant. Life, life, life. I love life. Life is what God is all about. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Let's have life. Let's have it everywhere. Let's fill every little bit with life. It may sound familiar to you, this. Um, This is exactly the same as what God said to Adam and Eve when he first made the world. He first created the world. He made the man and woman, said, be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. Let's have life everywhere. And now God is redoing it. It's a rerun. It's as if Noah is a new Adam. Who's going to make the same mistake? But we'll see that next week. But it's happening again. And it's all about life. It's God's plan hasn't changed. It's not like he's given up on earth. He loves earth. The earth he created. He's taken it through the judgment. But it's been reborn. It's not a different earth. It's made new, but it's still the same. And so for Noah, can you imagine walking around? There'd be a sort of sense of familiarity. This feels the same, but it's utterly different because that's what God's commitment is. It's to earth, to the planet earth. He loves this blue planet. He loves this earth. And he wants this earth to be bursting and teeming with life. And so he says to them, fill the earth with life. It's not how it was. There's now fear and dread with the animals. Things are not quite the way they were. It's not back to what it once was. But the same purpose remains. You're still to be in dominion over the animals, to care for the animals. They're all given into your hands. And then look at verse 3. Things are expanded out now from the garden. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Back in the garden, God had said, eat the the green plants, all the plants, all the fruit. It's for you to enjoy. But since then, death has entered the world. And now God says to people, now I give you the animals to, to eat. But you must not eat meat that has lifeblood still in it. Do you remember? God says, you're free to eat any fruit in the garden, but you must not eat this fruit. Right? You're free, but you must not eat this. Here he is again. You're free to eat everything I give to you, but you must not eat this. You must not eat meat that has its life. Why? Isn't that weird? It doesn't help the animal, right? I mean, the animal's dead already. It doesn't care whether you eat its blood or not. Why not to eat the lifeblood? I think it's because God wants you to know that life is sacred. All life. Every single life, whether that's animal or human. All life is sacred. Life is not something to be messed around with and used for our own pleasure. Life is not something that we're just to kind of run around and say, Ah, look at this, I can take whatever life I like. There is a sacredness about the blood of an animal. You know, I went, um, I've only been fishing uh, a couple of times. The first time with with my kids, it was very successful and we caught some fish. And, um, but I'd never done it before, so I didn't quite know what to do. I was a bit freaked. I thought we wouldn't catch any, so I thought we'd be okay, but we did. And I was like, oh man, now what do we do? But we had this uh, mackerel and we got it out 
And uh, it was there, flapping around. Um, and I killed it. And then we lit a barbecue and we ate it. And, you know, it was a really weird experience. And I, I'm, I'm not saying this to kind of... This is nothing... I'll talk about vegetarians in a minute. I'm not talking about that for a second. I'm just saying that it was very interesting to eat a fish and to see the blood where I'd killed it and then to eat it. And in a very profound way, it was, this fish has died so that I can live. Even built within the way that we eat is a sacrificial system. And there's something sacred about that. And there is not, that's not something to be messed around with. This is why to hunt animals for fun, to kill animals for fun, I cannot see how that is to respect life. This is why to, to, to treat animal life as something, who cares? We should care passionately. To kill things for the sake of killing things. Don't do that. God's about life. Kill to eat, but when you kill to eat, kill with care and kill in a worshipful way. I've got to say, I, I totally appreciate why some people are vegetarian. Because I can completely understand why some people would say, actually, the best way I can honor life, I think, is to, is to be vegetarian. I understand that. I don't think that's a demand on Christians because this verse seems to say that we can eat meat. But I want to say, do we even think about the meat we're eating? The animal that gave its life so that we could live? And then you worship Jesus who gave his life so that we could live? And if animal life is important because God is so passionate about life, if animal life is important, well, even more so is human life. From each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. To treat human life as anything other than the most sacred thing that we have in the whole universe is wicked. God says that humanity is created in the image of God. We're not the same as animals. There's a difference between an animal and a child. I kill a mackerel to eat it. I don't kill one of my children. You'll be glad to know. I'm clear on that. But God says, I'm passionate about life. And in a world that's full of violence, we want to be passionate about life. So my question for you is, and I want you to think about this. How can you be more passionate about life? How can you love life more? How can you care about all human life? Not just human life that appears to be valuable. Not just human life that everybody thinks is valuable. But human life that some people don't care about. How do you respond when you hear of a disaster where thousands of people have been killed? What is it? Do you get on your knees and grieve for the loss of the image of God? We're to be people who love life because God loves life. He's all about life. And so he says again in verse 7, so multiply and increase on the earth. Some of you may be thinking, does this mean, the, the, how does this work? If you kill someone, then you're supposed to be killed. Doesn't that make you a 
guilty. No, God says actually, God is setting up here uh, law. God is saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If someone takes a life, they deserve for their life to be taken. That is the appropriate punishment for life takers to have their life taken. That is the underlying principle, the ethics of the Old Testament, the ethics of capital punishment and all of those sorts of things. Now, man, we're going to run out of time, but I will get to it. All right, I'll show you, I'll wrap this all up. Um, okay, let's, let's uh, do the last bit. So we've seen it's bold based on sacrifice, it's passionate about life, and third, there's a beautiful rainbow. Um, verses 8 to the end, God says, I want, I'm establishing my covenant. He says, but I want you to know, I want you to know. I don't want you to kind of go, oh, perhaps there's a covenant, I'm not sure. Every time you see a rainbow, I want you to know that I've made a covenant. I've made a promise. I want you to remember my promise. When do rainbows happen? When it rains. Right? Rainbows happen when it rains. Why might it be important if you're Noah that when it rains, you see a rainbow? Because when it rains, you think, I remember this. I've been here before. This doesn't end well. If God had said, here's the, here's the sign of the covenant. It's going to be a bluebell. I mean, it's nice. It's a little bluebell. The bluebell isn't related, but the rainbow is because the, when the rain starts to fall, you see the rainbow and you say, it's okay. God's made a promise. He's made a promise. He's made a promise. And God doesn't forget his promises. And God so wants you to be sure. He doesn't want you to be the wobbly person on the bridge, teetering on the edge, going, am I going to make it? He wants you to be sure. So he says to you, here's a sign. It's based on sacrifice. It's passionate about life. And there's a beautiful rainbow. And when you say, well, so what? Who cares? Who cares that there's a blah, blah, blah? Who cares about this covenant God made with all creation? Well, this covenant, right? Now stick with this. We're going to whiz now, right? Are you ready? (laughs) Yes, overwhelmingly ready. This covenant, you discover, becomes the backdrop for a whole series of covenants. This is a covenant of life. They're all about life. But what happens as you read on through the page of the Bible is that God gives another covenant and another covenant. And each one builds on the previous covenant. And each of the covenants is part of this big Noah covenant. And so the covenant to Noah is followed by the covenant to one man, Abraham, which is a covenant of promise. Where God promises this one man from you, Abraham, all nations. Oh, there it is again, right? Big, all nations we bless, but it's through you. So now we're going to follow the covenant of promise through Abraham. And we're going to hit the covenant of law in Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver, who God, re- God rescues his people and gives them his law. And he says, if you obey my law, then you'll be my people. But they don't obey his law. The covenant of law doesn't work. It does what it's supposed to, but it can't save them. And so you drive on through and you get to the covenant of kingdom. And God makes a covenant with a man called David and he says, actually what you need is a king. How's the big Noah covenant going to be fulfilled? Well, you need a people and you need a law and you need a kingdom. And then you follow through the kingdoms and the kings aren't that great and they keep stuffing up. And then you get to Jeremiah chapter 31 and God says, the times are coming when I will make a new covenant. And all of the covenants so far ram into this new covenant. 
One is promised who will bring blessing to all of the world. One is promised who will be the one through whom all nations are blessed. One is promised who will keep the law, who will be the king. This new covenant. And then Jesus comes and the night before he dies, he breaks bread and he says, this bread is the new covenant. And Jesus says, it was all about me. It's all about me, but you probably aren't surprised. Because even Noah's covenant needed a sacrifice. That's what Jesus came to do. Of course the blood of animals can't take away sin, but the blood of the Son of God can. The blood of Jesus can take all sin. Christ gave himself. And as Jesus died on the cross, it was the sacrifice that pays for my sin so that God can look at me and say, John T, never again, never again, never again. But it's not just a covenant of sacrifice. It's a covenant that's passionate about life because do you remember what Jed was reading to us earlier? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's about life. And so as Christ goes to his death in the grave, you think, well, that's not a very good covenant because I thought it was all about life. Oh, hang on. He's alive again. Three days later, he smashes his way out of the grave and he says, look, life, 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 that's what I'm all about. And now he says to his disciples, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. We've got to fill this place. Tell them all. Tell everybody about the God of the covenant. The God who gave his son to die so that you could live, so that you could have life forever. And one day, one day God will take this planet earth and he will do what he didn't do in Noah's day. Turn to 2 Peter 3 just as we finish. 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to show you something that's really bugged me this week. Um, have a look from verse 6 by these waters also the world of that time he's talking about Noah's day 2 Peter 3 oh, 1, 2, 2, 4, sorry page 1224 uh, 2 Peter 3 by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed that's Noah's day by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a thousand days like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Whoa, whoa, whoa. God said, never again will I destroy. And yet he seems to be saying he's going to do something similar. Well, here's the point. What God is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 3 is the day when Jesus returns. 
the day when Jesus returns to take this planet Earth and to make it new. Just like he did in Noah's day when he made the world new. He removed what was wicked and he made it new. Now God is so committed to this planet Earth and to life that one day Jesus will return. And on the day Jesus returns, he will make everything new. This Earth will not be destroyed, annihilated. It will be made new. Just as the waters destroyed the Earth, God will make things new. And it will become the home of righteousness. And it will be a place of life. And it won't just be eight in a boat who are saved. God will take millions and millions through to his new earth, his new creation. It is a completely different thing that God is going to do. Because on that day, he will remove sin completely. And we will live forever. Oh man, it's so much stuff. We need to finish. We're going to pray. And um, we're going to pray. And then... um, we're going to, um, Flo is going to come and help us to think about how to apply it. What do you do when you feel uncertain? Um, how do we take this promise stuff and, and help it to really land?